Welcome to Let the Boys Kiss, the creation of queer ships, where we ask the question, is it queer baiting, queer coding, or queer canon? This week, we'll be discussing Charles Xavier and Eric Lencher, aka Professor X and Magneto from X-Men. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Before we get started today, we do have a correction that has come in. Uh, oh no, I can't believe it's taken this long. <laughs> no, turns out we got something wrong. We have been informed. By a reliable source. Yeah, by my friend who I actually mentioned in the Lord of the Rings episode, who's a big Lord of the Rings fan, that we had said that Henneth and Noon was a, a slash fic archive, but it was not just a slash fic archive. It was also a gen fic archive. So apologies to the good people at Henneth and Noon. And we meant no offense, Henneth Anoon. If anyone has any other corrections to send us, please feel free to do so. But mm-hmm. Henneth Anoon, genfic and slashfic. So X-Men. That sounds, uh, just from the men in the title, sounds pretty ripe for shipping. Why are we discussing these particular two gentlemen? These two gentlemen have seen a surge in shipping since the release of one of the many movies in the X-Men series. So it's an interesting case study in some of the patterns we've been talking about throughout this podcast. I think we'll see some ideas reinforced Mm, as we get into this ship. Always nice to have your theories, you know, get evidence added to to the support. So who are they? So Charles Xavier, a.k.a. Professor X, and Eric Lencher, a.k.a. Magneto, are mutants from the X-Men series of comics and films and TV shows and worlds. They have telepathy and metal controlling powers, respectively, and they tend to be at odds with each other. Uh, They have an intellectual disagreement that is manifested in a more overt conflict. Mutants and humans are at odds, and how should that be resolved, I guess, is the heart of the struggle. Yes. So what are the sources that we're going to be looking at today? Only the movies, because as we have discussed probably on several occasions at this point, neither of us are really comic book readers, though we will discuss a teensy bit of, of the canon of the comic books later. Right. And I have not seen all of the movies. I don't think you've seen all of the movies either, but I you've not. seen more of them than me. <laughs> yes. And I have seen all of the X-Men movies except Logan. Oh, you should see Logan. Logan's good. So I've heard. Deadpool 2 and Dark Phoenix. Sure. I have seen... The, the first three, and then I've seen from the newer group, I have seen X-Men First Class, but I have not seen Days of Future Past or Apocalypse or Dark Phoenix. I have, however, seen Logan, and I, like you, have only seen the first Deadpool. Slight difference in what we've consumed, some of which is, I think, relevant for our discussion, but most of which is not. Are you a fan of the x peoples yeah i mean casually obviously i haven't by my own viewing habits have not been driven to like watch all of the movies but i I like a a comic book movie and i like their mutant powers and i enjoyed the first couple of x-men movies back in the day Mm -hmm. the last stand i remember being terrible and then i very much enjoyed first class but weirdly i never got around to watching days of future past even though 
I adore Peter Dinklage. So yeah, I would say I'm a very casual fan, but I do enjoy them when I watch them. How about yourself? Yeah, I like the X-Men a lot. I think they have a special place in my heart because it was an early comic book thing that I loved watching the cartoon as a kid. The other like main cartoon I watched was Spider-Man and then... The only comic books I've ever read are the Silver Age run of both of those properties. So yeah, I enjoy them. The film series is kind of very variable in quality. It's not like the MCU, which in my opinion tends to range from like pretty good to like pretty yeah. great. X-Men's a little bit more un- uneven. But why do people ship these two? Why do people ship these two? I was very curious to see why the shipping picked up so much following First Class. And we've talked about a recency bias. We've talked about the power of handsome actors. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, how much explanation do you need when these characters have been the lovely, but not necessarily youthful Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart, and then all of a sudden they become the... the More youthful. More youthful. (laughs) This is the term I'm comfortable with to describe them. The more youthful James McAvoy and Michael Passbender. Right. But going back and rewatching First Class and also honestly Days of Future Past through a lens of this podcast, it's like, oh no, I get it. This, this, there's a lot of beats. This is a love story. (laughs) Yeah. uh Uh-huh. It makes Uh sense to me. Yeah. It's all there, man. And then you go back and look for people's reviews and articles at the time and it's like, They were talking about it. Yeah. People have been talking about it. Throughout both the Singer movies and these, their overall relationship is sort of the same. They come together. Yeah, they kind of reset in in every movie. Yeah. (laughs) The same relationship. And they have a debate about whether or not mutants will ever be accepted by non-mutants. And they have a falling out. And then they're like, but maybe sometime later we could get together again. And it's a little repetitive after a while, but generally the same arc. But in first class specifically so first class is supposed to be kind of their the origin story of their relationship i guess so the way that the two of them meet in the movie i actually i want you to talk about it because of your delightful comparison (laughs) to another film again i'm coming back into this being like all right what's what's happening in this movie and so what happens is Magneto is pursuing Sebastian Shaw, who is another- Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. He's pursuing Kevin Bacon, who sort of tortured him as a young man to get him to exhibit his mutant power. So he was a literal Nazi. A literal Nazi who literally killed Magneto's mom in front of him and tortured him. So he has a bit of a vendetta against Sebastian Shaw. You might say. Simultaneously- Professor X and Mystique are helping the U.S. government locate Sebastian Shaw. And so they're sort of all converging on him. He's like on a yacht at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so Magneto is trying to kill him for personal reasons. And he goes into the water after Sebastian Shaw, who they get into a submarine. Right. And he's in danger of drowning. And and Charles senses it. So he's like, he runs, he dives into the water, grabs him, and he essentially like keeps him from killing himself. He would have killed himself. And the thing that this scene reminded me the most of is the scene in Titanic where Leo meets Rose on the edge of the boat where she's about to jump off. Their interaction is so similar, but it's even more heightened and more dramatic. Well, because they go into the water. Because he dives in after him, right? It's not just him talking. Right. And then they they do bond because Eric at this point has been on this one-man mission to find Kevin Bacon, and he has never met another mutant. 
And so they have this moment where Charles is like communicating with him telepathically, which he didn't realize could be done. And he says to Charles, I thought I was alone. And Charles is basically like, you know, you're not alone now or whatever. (laughs) And then they bond pretty quickly after that. So they decide to form a team with a sympathetic government official. And initially Eric is with them. And then he's going to kind of sneak off by himself to go back after Shaw. and, And Charles confronts him and says, you know, Shaw has friends. You might need some friends too. And so Eric decides to come back and and be with the team. And almost instantaneously after he's decided, I guess I'll stay with this guy, they start zazzing and bantering. Like (laughs) they are all about the banter. And they are teasing and zinging. Yeah. Instant bonding for these two guys. And so then, uh, you know, yada, 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 plot happens. They've accumulated all of these baby mutants kids who they decide they're going to train in their powers because they've already mastered their powers. So they take on this fatherly role to this group of teenage or young 20s. Should we say that we haven't mentioned yet because we don't like it that their ship name is Cherik? Yeah, I despise it. So I was going to just pretend it wasn't happening. But they are called Cherik. I mean, Charles and Eric are not fortunate names to try to combine. The closest we've hit upon for us for something that we like, because they are in this movie sort of taking on all of these foster kids, basically, a ship name for them that we do endorse is X-Dads. I'm here for it. So that's, that's what we can call them going forward. So they're training them, but in the process, Eric has been on his own this whole time, just trying to take control of his powers, and Charles realizes that he can help him. And there's this scene (laughs) where basically Magneto needs to be able to control bigger stuff as evidenced by him trying to bring the submarine out of the water. So there's this giant satellite in the distance of where they've been training. And in order to get him to be able to move that, Charles goes into his mind, pulls out his happiest childhood memory that he didn't even know that he had. And then they're both in tears from sharing (laughs) this beautiful memory with each other. And then Eric is able to Once he has focused himself and Charles has told him, you're not all bad, there's good in you too. He is able to move the giant satellite in the distance to face towards them. It's a turning point moment for him. Because initially Magneto was using his anger to fuel his powers and could only really use them when he was most angry. So this is a way for him to unlock his powers in a more zen way. But there's also something weird about the scene, which... Maybe it's only in my brain because you said you didn't notice this. But, they're, they're, you know, they're kind of tearing up and Moira, who's another person they're working with, calls them to come in to see a, a press conference. that the I think it's about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Charles immediately turns and walks away like, oh, OK, Moira, I'm coming. And there's this like weird lingering shot on Eric, like gazing after Charles. Well, that was a big moment for him yeah. because what he says I'm pulled, I pulled up the quote here. Charles says to Eric, there's so much more to you than you know. Not just pain and anger. There's good too. I feel it. When you can access all of that, you'll possess a power no one can match. Not even me. And I don't know if it's because of what happens later in the movie that we'll get to, but like I also read a little bit of jealousy in uh, Magneto's expression as he was looking after Charles, as Charles went to when go. When he runs off after a lady. Yeah, be with Moira. But... I mean, they were sharing this intimate moment and then someone interrupts it and he's just like, okay, cool, bye. <laughs> and then Eric's like, I thought we were sharing. Yeah. 
<laughs> so there, there's this whole machinations in the background of the movie with the Russians and the Cuban Missile Crisis and starting a nuclear war. So they go to Russia, I think, to try to find Shaw. Yeah, they think that he is going to be meeting with this Russian military guy. Because his goal at this point is to try to get uh, America and Russia to fire missiles at each other so that basically all humans will destroy each other and only mutants will remain. When they get there, Shaw's not there, but his lackey, Emma Frost, is. And so Eric decides to go in. He's like, "I'll, I'll get her and it's better than nothing. And the government's like, well, I guess we gotta leave him. And how does Charles feel about that? <laughs> Why, Charles is at first conflicted, and then he says, I'm sorry, I can't leave him. And he goes in after him, because he just, you know, they're too close at this point. They are. Yada, yada, yada. More of the movie happens. The, the Cuban Missile Crisis happens. Yes, they're there to stop Shaw from encouraging the Cuban Missile Crisis to happen. Mm -hmm. and Magneto goes to confront Shaw, and while he's confronting him, he takes the classic Magneto helmet, which Shaw invented. It's actually a Shaw helmet. Yeah, and puts it on to lock Charles out, which is, like, so hurtful. His mission this whole time has been he just wants his own personal revenge on Shaw. He wants to kill this guy, and Charles is, like, you know, advocating for nonviolence and trying to tell Eric that it's not actually going to make him feel better to kill this guy. So... When he gets his chance, he gets in a room with Shaw. He puts on the helmet because he doesn't want Charles in there telling him, be the bigger person, yeah. <laughs> whatever Charles would be telling him. So what happens is the mutants have saved the world, basically. And Charles thinks, this is amazing. It's going to be great publicity <laughs> for the mutants. And everyone's going to know that we saved the world. But instead, what happens is everyone got really fucking freaked out because they just saw a guy pull an entire submarine out of the water and throw it onto a beach and like crazy mutant shit happened all over the place and everyone's terrified and so they think well good this russia u.s crisis is resolved and while we're at it we might as well just take out these mutants too because we're all sitting here on top of all these missiles <laughs> and the beach is where the mutants are and it's all mutants except for one government operative right. uh, on the beach together and so basically they order the guys on the ships to bomb the coast as moira She's, like, trying to get a call in to say, like, it's all good. We handled the situation. There's no threat here. But instead, more missiles than are necessary, I would say, <laughs> get shot from these ships at the coast. And so this is confirmation of everything Eric has always assumed would happen, right? Right. And so he, with his metal control powers, grabs all of the missiles in the air, turns them around to face the ships, and starts sending them back at the ships. Right, and, and Charles, Charles can't stop him because he's wearing his brand right. new helmet. So instead, he's like pleading with him, but yeah. it's not convincing Eric because he did. They did just try to murder them right. after they saved the world. And as they're, I think they start like actually tussling and fighting. He's trying to pull the <laughs> helmet off. So as they're as they're going through their breakup scene, explosions are literally going off because Magneto will lose control of the missiles for like a split second, and then and some, yeah, of, some of them will explode, and then he gets control of them again. And yeah. So what ends up ending their their conflict is Ugh. Moira starts shooting at, at, at Eric. Magneto, yeah. And he deflects Which is the like, bullet. why? Why would you put bullets at Magneto? I think she's trying bullet. to distract him so Charles yeah. can get his helmet off or something. And But he's, you know, focused on not getting shot. And one of the deflected bullets ends up hitting Charles in the lower back. So that, of course, stops everything. Because yes. Eric freaks out because he accidentally hurt Charles. And so... 
this scene, man, you want to talk about queer baiting. Eric freaks out. Charles is on the ground. Eric runs over and is, is cradling his body because yeah. he has been hurt. And so they're having this conversation where he says, okay, there are too many quotes. <laughs> so Eric's still trying to convince Charles they should be in this together. We should go run off and go be mutant and proud, right? Yeah. And he says to him, I want you by my side. And he's got tears in his eyes. Oh, God. <laughs> and he's saying to him, we want the same things because they do both love mutants and you sure. know, want them to be happy and exist in the world. So he says, we want the same things. And Charles says, I'm sorry, but we do not. Oh, heartbreaking. <laughs> But then, this is what you noticed that I didn't even really think about. What happens next? So when he says, I'm sorry, but we don't, you know, Eric is, I guess, resigned at that point. So he gets up and he sort of transferred the cradling of Charles over to Moira. So he yeah. leaves and is replaced by this woman who, again, like before I was like, is he already jealous of her? What's going on with this? Mm-hmm. And then um, there's been all this stuff going on, too, with Mystique, who is Charles's adopted sister. And he tells Eric that, you know, Mystique wants to go off with him. So he's like... No, he you- tells Mystique. Yeah. Mystique is there, like, concerned about Charles, obviously. And she's going to stay and take care of him because they're basically brother and sister. And and Charles says to her that she should go with Eric because he knows that's what she wants to do. Right. <laughs> so in the end, it goes from Eric cradling Charles and them having this conversation about being together to Moira cradling Charles and Eric going off with this other woman. And so what it reads when he's like, we, when Eric, what it reads like to me, right. With my shifting (laughs) goggles on Eric saying, we want the same things as is him being like, we're both gay. Right. And Charles is like, I'm sorry, but we're not, I'm going to be with this woman and you go with that one. Yeah. It's literally like, (laughs) give this woman to me and here's a woman for you. Right. Cause (laughs) we're not, this, this isn't what we are. It's wild, man. I don't know that I will go so far as to call these women like no homo ladies because... No. I mean, especially Mystique I, is also really a focus. Definitely not Mystique. Those. Especially since there is a moment where she tries to seduce Eric and he's not into it, which is yeah. like we didn't talk about. But she's literally naked in his bed and he's like, oh, put some clothes on. <laughs> but I don't think you're supposed to be like shipping them together. I guess there is maybe this element that Moira and Charles could be romantic interests. But even that, I don't really feel like they're... Well, that comes back in Apocalypse in a way that's also not satisfying, but... Oh, really? Yeah. Well, at least in first class, they're kind of friendly, but I don't think that they're really having these super overtly romantic no. moments. But she has um, a character on her own, at least. And she has yeah, yeah, agency yeah. does a lot of stuff. I just mean, I don't feel like in that movie, she's being thrown in his romantic path no. that much they they're they work together and they're kind of friendly right. <laughs> but there's not and at the end they don't end up together so right exactly but yeah it's just that scene it's yeah. just like, it's really bizarre right then he's cradling him and then it's like no let's get a woman in here instead <laughs> and also you leave but take this woman with you right. now we both have girlfriends <laughs> crisis averted nobody's gonna think we're gay now yeah, so I, I I finished watching that movie and I was like, yep, I see why you might watch this movie and then start really shipping, not just because they're handsome younger men, but... Sure, but because the movie is about their relationship, right? Yeah, they have a number of romantic beats. Uh-huh. Now we get to the part where I haven't seen Days of Future Past, so I want you to tell me 
how does their romance continue in that one? So there is sort of like less and less as the movies progress in terms we'll of what's also going talk on. about later. <laughs> yeah. I feel like at the end of first class, right, Charles has told Mystique to leave and he's told Eric he can't be with him. And then oh. they get off the beach and he's, you know, getting ready to open his school and everything seems like it's just going to continue on in a classic X-Men kind of way. But in Days of Future Past, yes, there's this whole framing device around the future and time travel. Time travel. Get into it. But when we first see Charles in the titular past... <laughs> <laughs> At least like in the in the in the seventies time 70s. that follows first class. Right. Chronologically. He is fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> the Vietnam War has happened and so all of his students at the school that he started have gone to war he couldn't keep running the school which is a little strange because they often have much younger kids at the school as well. Yeah. You wouldn't think all of them would be of fighting age. I wouldn't but whatever. <laughs> So he started taking this serum to help him continue to walk, which also depresses his mind abilities. And I mentioned to you, he's addicted to it. It is a serum he takes by needle. So there's scenes of him. Yeah, you get the whole wrapping his thing. arm. Yeah, and yeah, he's yeah, got yeah. like long scraggly hair. And he's so depressed that Eric and Mystique <laughs> have both left him, which it's just very jarring given the sort of calm ending of Yeah, first- man, at the end of first class, it's like, I'm sad that Eric and I had to part ways, but at least now I'll start my school and I'll have all of these students and I'll help the mutants of the future. Yeah. It's going to be great. No, he's he's wrecked. It was not great. And so they have to break Eric out of prison because he got accused of assassinating JFK. Which is just delightful. I love that. And the first thing he does when he sees Eric is he punches him in the face because he's so angry and upset he's been stewing and at a certain point in their initial interaction too charles screams at eric you abandoned me (laughs) (laughs) you told him to go charles yeah you were the one who said you couldn't be together i think the only other thing that's kind of important out of days of future past is so again there's this whole framing device of you have your future versions of professor x and magneto And they're together. So when they send Wolverine back in time, they tell Wolverine, you have to find both of us. And it was a time when we could not have been further apart. So anyway, eventually the the danger that's kind of boxing them in shows up and Magneto gets mortally wounded and he's able to make it back inside with Charles. And in just this really beautiful moment and just a lovely performance from Sir Ian McKellen as he's dying, he's gotten like a wound in his stomach. So he's kind of bleeding out. He says to, to Professor X, all those years fighting Charles to have a precious few of them back. And then he reaches out and they hold hands and it's like, Oh, oh. it's so sweet. Well, cause the thing with them is always, they never stop loving each other. They mm. just, it's like, they have an intellectual disagreement. They think they can't hang out anymore because of their intellectual disagreement. <laughs> and right. then some, some bigger thing happens where they have to unite and be on the same side again. And then rinse, yeah. repeat, you know? I mentioned this to you as we were starting to outline, but the thing it reminds me of, but a successful version of, is the Dumbledore-Grindelwald relationship, except our good guy never became a fascist. He was just like, (laughs) I can't go there, so we can't be together as long as you're taking on. Are you still a fascist? Oh, then I guess we can't be together. But as soon as you stop, you better believe it. We're going to end our days together. So Uh I didn't watch Dark Phoenix, but Apocalypse is a kind of a similar structure of like after Days of Future Past, they've 
Eric just kind of goes off and he can't stay in the States because they think he assassinated JFK. So like, I'm obsessed with that. Who came up with that? It's so great. He ends up leaving. And then in, yeah, Apocalypse, Eric does some evil stuff again and, but they have to save him. So Charles gets into action. It's sort of the same story beats. And then neither of us watched Dark Phoenix, but yeah, we did come across what is, I guess, the final beat of the Charles-Eric relationship in the films at this point, unless they make more of them. So I have, again, no knowledge of what happens in Dark Phoenix. So I couldn't tell you even what the resolution of the fighting is, but the fighting has resolved at this point in the movie, suffice to say. And uh, seemingly Charles has retired. He's hanging out in Paris at a cafe, living the life. And at the end, Eric shows up in Paris at the cafe, not in costume, not wearing his helmet. So letting himself be vulnerable, right? (laughs) And he sits down with him at the cafe and he says, long time ago, you saved my life and you offered me a home. I'd like to do the same for you. And then he pulls out of his pockets chess pieces because they love to play chess together. Is it a metaphor yeah. for something? Probably. And <laughs> so he has him pick a chess piece and he says, just one game for old time's sake. And Charles picks the white piece and then they play a game together and the camera just lovingly pans away from them as they sit and play chess at a cafe in Paris. They're going to retire together. That's it's nice. sweet. It's nice that they're coming together earlier than in their days of future past version. Well, because they learned that lesson, right? I guess. I don't know. I, don't I didn't know. see like an apocalypse. I'm not really sure what happened. They forgot uh, the lesson. Okay. So I think there's, yeah, that's the text. And mm-hmm. there's some stuff in the text. For <clears throat> there's some one. stuff there. But what are our creators saying? What are our actors saying? Are they acknowledging yeah. what is in the text? Well, some of them are. Some of them are not. So <laughs> I guess we can get into that. There's. I'll start with what is not going to be the, the biggest part of this conversation, but is adorable. A quote from Ian McKellen, which is from like back in the day, back when they were making the first set of these movies. It's from the... Yeah. Part. And so they're asking him about Magneto's like personal life and what's going on there. And he says he hasn't been given a love life, which I think is a pity. It would be wonderful if the camera hovered over Magneto's bed to discover him making love to Professor X. <laughs> so he was shipping them. Oh, he was shipping it. Back in those original movies, he well, I would, he and Patrick Stewart love each other so much. They it would really have been do. delightful. But yeah, so this is the thing people have been talking about, people including Ian McKellen, for longer than since first class. Right. Yeah. Um, they've always had that chemistry. But yeah, where we get into a lot of talk about it really is with McAvoy and Fassbender. They are, like McKellen and Stewart, seem very buddy-buddy. And they do all of these press tours and interviews together. And they talk a lot about the dynamic of the ex-dads. Right. <laughs> I almost said Jarek, but I didn't. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I mean, we'll get into this because we're going to go through the quotes. But I think to a point that you've made, really, James McAvoy talks about it a lot, and Michael Fassbender agrees. Yeah, the dynamic does seem to be, as you will notice in these quotes, McAvoy goes on at length about their relationship dynamics, and then Fassbender goes, yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) So I think he agrees, but he doesn't tend to go on at length. So yeah, let's just get into their delightful quotes. We will start with 
just some things like that are generally about their relationship instead of about specific movies. McAvoy has said it's a little bit of a mini tragedy that him being Charles and Magneto don't, you know, have sex and become married and become best friends, which I'm delighted by the order in which he is placed to those. Because <laughs> they do become best friends. They, they do. They don't they skip do the over those first two that he wanted. <laughs> And also he says about Charles in general, but like why he's so drawn to Eric. Charles is always looking for people to fix. He loves Eric massively. But then he goes on to talk about, you know, but this stuff's keeping them apart. But Charles very much has a savior complex thing. So then we've got, there actually is this lovely interview that we will post that is the two of them telling the oral history of Charles and Eric. So they talk about what was going on with their relationship through the films. Mm-hmm. And the McAvoy starts talking about the moment that we discussed where they meet each other in the water. He says, that is a nice moment where I don't know exactly what you said, but you do say something along the lines of, I thought I was alone. I thought I was the only one. And I say something like, you'll never be alone again. Or just, I love you or something. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever I try to remember the quote, that's kind of where I end up too. It's like, he says something, you know, nice and reassuring, but I can't remember exactly what it was. (laughs) So then they start to get into the highs and lows of their relationship as they go through the films. As we have discussed, it's kind of the same thing over and over (laughs) where they love each other, but they disagree. So they can't be around each other. And then all of a sudden they have to be around each other for plot reasons. James says, it's kind of like a love story where you don't always like the person you're in love with, but you still love them. It's like Charles and Eric always hate the way they approach things. He's just like, ugh, he's always wanting to kill the humans. He's always going on about the same old shit. And yet I love the guy. I can't kill him. I don't want to mind control him. I love him. And then Fassbender says, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the input, Michael. So then, yeah, we'll get into another one that's about Dark Phoenix. I think a lot of this reminiscing sort of interview stuff was happening on the Dark Phoenix tour because... Is that was that intended to be the last in the series? I don't really know what the. Deal I mean, there is. I assume if Fox had not been, you know, sold to Disney, they would have kept making some kind of X people movies. But to... would it have been about their relationship? They're retired at the end of Dark Phoenix. I guess they could have always come out of retirement. So yeah, here's them talking about that dynamic we have discussed of how the movies are really all the same thing happening over and over. They ask where they are in terms of their relationship coming into Dark Phoenix. James says, I think it's on thin ice a little bit. They've kind of decided to just go, you do your thing and I'll do my thing. Fassbender talks a little bit more in this exchange. A little bit. They've kind of sort of annoyed each other. Mm-hmm. And James comes in with, they've annoyed each other. So let's not talk for a little while. I still love you, but let's just not see each other for a little while, okay? I need some space. Fassbender, don't call me until it's absolutely necessary. McAvoy, I'll be there. But yeah, they agree. That's sort of their dynamic is like their underlying connection never goes away. But they kind of decide in between each movie that maybe it's better if they just you know what it. it. You know what it's also like? What? Tony and Steve after Civil War when Steve it gives them It is like phone. that. They love each other, but they have a fundamental disagreement. Yeah. That one's a little complicated, though, by the presence of Bucky, because he has fully chosen another person over his relationship with Tony. Yes, that's true. It's not exactly the same, but, but it this is, is just reminding you of a bunch of stuff. <laughs> it's reminiscent of many things. So now we get into 
some the interesting dynamic of how the first movie is fully about their relationship and the development of their relationship. And then yes. as you go through the successive movies, there's less and less of them in them. So like, what's going on with that? <laughs> so they asked them in the same interview about how their relationship evolves through the movies. And McAvoy says, I don't feel like it's that different now, which again, we've remarked on. It's always mm-hmm. the same. Do you know what? We had more to do together in first class and days of future past less so in Days of Future Past, but we had more to do with each other in every film in the past. Apocalypse, there was less to do, until finally we find ourselves in this movie saying, like, three words to each other. So that's how it's changed massively. We don't get to do it. (laughs) I think it's a great travesty, and one of the great missed opportunities of this incarnation of the X-Men saga. Fassbender says, agreed. (laughs) We do get to play a game of chess in this last one. (laughs) Which is nice. But they have noticed how much less they appear on screen together. And they have their own theories Mm -hmm. about why this might be. And James comes in with some insights and says, "Uh, I feel like it might have been due to the Cherik shipping that after first class, they restricted the amount of time we spend on screen together because they realized it was going to cause a lot of problems in certain parts of the world. So uh, clearly McAvoy is on board for the Cherrick shipping and their relationship and Fassbender agrees. (laughs) (laughs) Fassbender's just like, I'm with you, James. Whatever you say. (laughs) So this brings us to uh, the other half of our creative team. The writers, directors, producers... Behind the scenes, folks. Right. I think probably more so than any film franchise we've done. And honestly, maybe at this point, more so than any of the TV shows we've covered. Because we've mostly talked about tightly controlled, shorter television things. Yeah. yeah. Or even like Hannibal. Yeah. I mean, it's all Brian Fuller the whole way through. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of hands in the pot. Is that a saying? <laughs> Yeah, cooks in the kitchen. I don't cooks know. In the kitchen. So you've got multiple directors over these movies, tons of different writers, tons of different story buys. There's not as coherent of a creative either vision or even team. Mm-hmm. But I think one thing that we haven't really talked about, because the shipping picks up with the first class of it all, is sort of the history of X-Men and the X-Series and queer representation within the franchise. And so one of the things about Brian Singer's initial X-Men run was his decision to very clearly make it an allegory for gay rights and coming out and all kinds of other queer issues. Whereas X-Men has always been considered an allegory for all different kinds of discrimination. And it's a pretty Mm -hmm. malleable allegory because it's relatively vague. But Singer very explicitly was like, I'm using it as an allegory for the gay experience. And so in his stories, right, there's a lot of stuff about passing, which doesn't always match up on racial allegories quite as well. There's a very clear coming out scene, which could not be more yeah, there like is. coming out scene in X2. So, Where they're saying stuff to them like, have you tried not being a mute? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a face. So we did want to dive into that a little bit and see what Singer had said, because it was interesting to me before I rewatched First Class and seeing how 
romantic the film is, that there hadn't been more active shipping around the initial X-Men run when it was so explicitly, right, queer allegory. And we know that, And right? interesting that he made it a queer allegory and didn't stack it with some queer characters. <laughs> like, there's not a lot going on there in terms yeah. of on-screen canon representation. Right. And I don't know if that's just, it was, you know, the year 2000. It was like 2000. Still, yeah. It was but... bold enough that it was a metaphor. <laughs> right. But the shipping didn't really start here as heavily. <laughs> so we do want to fast forward to our more current creators and, yeah. and what Although I do said. want to say, if I'd been thinking about it at the time, I would have been all about the ice kid and the fire kid together. I mean, come on. It's fire and come ice. Come on. It's fire and ice. Let's go. That was a setup. We do have this history within the franchise of sort of general queerness and an mm-hmm. idea of queer representation. But what does Matthew Vaughn, who directed the uh, first class and at some level made a choice with the other writers to center it around yeah. the love story of these two men? Interestingly, not a lot is what he has to say about them. I mean, he talks, we found quotes of him talking about like the characterizations of Eric and Charles individually. And basically they all seem to think that Eric is like super cool and Charles is kind of lame. Yeah. (laughs) Which is a shame. But yeah, I mean, he doesn't really have a lot to say specifically about the ship, which does bring to mind questions about why they have framed the film this way. He, He does talk about something that we've talked about before, the idea that the canon of a comic book franchise is not gospel, right? right? Like you can do kind of anything you want with a comic book thing because it changes itself constantly all the time. So he was asked about people bringing up the changes they'd made to canon. And he says, yeah, but I could tell those fans that they're wrong. One thing about the X-Men world is that if you know your X-Men universe, every writer reinvented the storyline. I did my research and none of the histories of the characters make any sense. (laughs) Each writer just totally changed the history to make their plot work. So I can quite safely say that X-Men has a history of reinventing its history for the sake of the plot. So that brings to mind the question of like, why is this the particular reinvention that he went with? Sure. Right? Like if he is not saying, oh, I did this out of adherence to canon. That's why I chose to tell the story this way. That means Mm -hmm. that he looked at his characters and what he was working with and was like, I'm going to make it this a love story it what it really brought to mind for us was our good omens discussion with good old neil gaiman where he talks about trying to adapt his book to a series and looking at the characters and what he was working with and thinking like you know what would make this story work (laughs) is if i took the beats of a love story and i used those to be the plot and it it really feels like that is what has happened here but i not seemingly intentionally right in the mind of Matthew Vaughn so how does something like this happen yeah I don't I don't know if it was a question of like to the point of some of the quotes we didn't clear like he loved the Eric character so much that he was like okay I'm going to center on Eric what's up with Mm -hmm. Eric his relationship with Charles and it spun out of that yeah we don't because if you're going the thing is they are always paired they are two sides of the same coin right and in any story that they're in their stories revolve around each other. So you're right that it could be a case where he was like, I want to do this movie and the character I want to focus on is Eric because he's just so cool. And the story you write when you're writing a story about Eric is a story about Eric and Charles (laughs) because 
they just are each other's person when you're telling a story. But it's so fascinating to me that it's ended up like this because it doesn't, I mean, maybe it's intentional and he just never talked about it being intentional, but it honestly feels like the subtext of it was subtext to him. Right. (laughs) We did not realize he was telling a love story. (laughs) And so we didn't find much else from any of the other sort of writers or... Which was, it's kind of a problem for our queer baiting angle. Because there's certainly not any of them being like, guys, they're not going to kiss. We're not trying to make them gay. But then they keep making the story about them being in love with each other. It hasn't entered into their conversation at all. (laughs) Except for this quote that we found from a producer named Hutch Parker. What a name. Who, I guess, interestingly, is providing a lot of continuity to the uh, franchise because he's been a producer on these since X back in X two days and he said talking about the idea of the Cherik shipping he says I like the questions I like the speculation and certainly James and Michael like to play into it and the whole cast too I think it does speak to part of what's unique about the X-Men they give you much more complex characters and relationships they're not easily pigeonholed in any given way and you get to see them make turns that we recognize from life so, so- we're definitely getting to a point where this is becoming common, I think, where people involved in the production of things hear about people shipping their queer characters or shipping their characters in queer ships, I guess. And they're like, cool. <laughs> like the reaction now has cool, become, isn't that neat? <laughs> what a world. It's so fun that people can do that. Yes. Talk um, about my product, please. I don't care how. Exactly. So we're sort of leaving the world of like, Ew, stop saying that my characters are gay and entering the world of, it's so cool that everybody says that about them, (laughs) but we haven't entered the world of, oh, people think they should be together. Let's actually put them together. (laughs) That was pretty much the scope of what we could find from the creator. So yeah. And without the continuity and the elephant in the room, I guess that we're not discussing is the lack of continuity comes from Brian Singer being a monster person in real life. (laughs) Like partially. I mean, I don't know. what happened i don't know if first class was offered to him hard to say i mean it's like did he get pulled off of apocalypse or what like something no it ended i think before things really hit the fan so he finished directing it but then did not get to direct dark phoenix and then i think he might have had a disagreement or maybe he was making superman returns i don't know why he wasn't on x3 and brett ratner directed that and i don't remember yeah but he's been the most the most director of the main yeah. X continuity of the main storyline. But still, there have been four directors across. I mean, across seven movies, there's still not that many directors. It's not that few directors either. It's somewhere in the middle ground when you're talking yeah. about. But also like a lot of writers, right? So a lot of different yes. writers, a lot of different story buys. Yes, 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 and yes. I, I think it's also right the case of Brian Singer's participation was like interrupted so it's not like he made the first four and then left right first two little two and then the next two and things got moved around but yeah i mean there's not a huge amount to dig into quote wise from them because they just don't talk about it a lot not nearly as much as mcavoy and fassbender or mcavoy 
while Fassbender nods. <laughs> I mean, the actors have as much continuity as any of the directors, really. Ian McKellen has probably been in... Yeah, Ian McKellen and, I don't know if Patrick Stewart is in as many as Ian McKellen, but the two of them are the most continuity that you've right. got. <laughs> well, literally, Wolverine is the most continuity. Hugh Jackman. There's always a Wolverine. Someone should ask Hugh Jackman what's going on. I would love someone to ask Hugh Jackman. But yeah, the quotes come from basically just... James and Michael doing a press tour interview together. It's very siloed where all this information is coming from. Yeah, you pointed out that like none of them seem to be coming from Comic-Cons or other venues. It's just press for the actual movies. Yeah, which is not really the norm. But that's our quotes. So I want to transition into our literature review. So we'll start with our fan fiction and the stats of AO3 popularity. This ship, not Cherrick, ex-dads, <laughs> is the 29th most popular ship on the 2020 ranking. And they have about like 15,000-ish stories in there. I mean, top 30 is a solid ship, right? Mm-hmm. And interestingly, not interestingly, we find that the most kudos to Vic fits the mold <laughs> that we have found on everything other than Hannibal at this point. So the, the most kudos is this fic called Order Up by someone whose name I cannot pronounce. Icaracity, Ikira City, something. I don't know. We'll post it so people will be able to see. It's a, it's a short, fluffy fic. Anybody could get into it. It's like all admissions kind of fic about, I guess it's an alternate universe. Charles is a professor. Eric works at a pizza place and Charles calls up to order pizza. And the first time he calls, he's like an absent-minded professor. So at the end of the conversation, he says, love you. (laughs) And Eric says it back. And then they sort of are like, he keeps calling and they're intrigued by each other. And then of course they end up meeting by the end. So it's just, it's cute. It's cute. It's inoffensive. It's just a fun little what if scenario it continues that the only exception is Hannibal what we're really looking for at this point is are there any other exceptions or Or is Hannibal just like the only weird ship out there so yeah I don't think we have a ton more to say about that but what's our scholarly work well so one of the questions that I had I think as I've mentioned throughout this is again not having rewatched first class until a little bit later into this process why did the shipping pick up with first class when the relationship between Charles and Eric has pretty much always been the same. And there are so many other characters in X-Men, like to your point, there are the young male characters of Iceman and Pyro in the initial run. You know, it's a maybe more queer friendly story potentially in the initial run. So I was like, what is happening? Why aren't we seeing the same even level of shipping as Lord of the Rings at the time, right? As these other contemporary things that are going on. And so One of the questions I had is who is, and maybe at the time and maybe still really partaking in like the main canon of X-Men who's engaging with superhero movies outside of sort of your MCU that everyone watches. Sure. And I found a survey of who's purchasing physical comics, which Mm -hmm. is maybe not the whole scope of who's reading comics. But as of 2017 which is pretty recent, recent. (laughs) pretty recent superhero comic buyers are still 78% male. My jaw dropped when I heard that blew my mind. It's amazing because I feel like there are not that many fandoms I can think of at this point that 
are like that anymore. I, I, I think people have conceptions about things being, you know, for men or for women or whatever. But really, anytime people say, you know, women don't watch football or whatever, it's like, well, no, 50% of the football audience. Yeah. Is good. <laughs> so it's like, there's, there's hardly anything anymore where people say this is a thing for this type of person. And it actually looks like that. And for there to be comic books, which are so in the mainstream at this point now because of all of the film adaptations yeah and women haven't infiltrated that space more than 22 (laughs) percent it's wild i i was shocked and so similarly i think this was from fan lore talking about fan fiction in the x-men fandom prior to the newer movies, there's a part that says, although the fandom is now much reduced in size, X-Men had a large and active fan fiction writing community during the 1990s, early 2000s, primarily active on Usenet, message boards, and mailing lists. Oh, the early mm-hmm. internet. Oh, the dawn mm-hmm. of the digital age. The dawn of the digital age. <laughs> but relatively, it has a large number of male fanfic writers compared to many other fandoms. Which I guess you would expect, knowing that 78% of uh, superhero comic book buyers are men. Right. But I, it just, it continues this process of being like, what is it about X-Men that seems to be uniquely attracting not even queer men, just men? When again, it is this more queer friendly set of canon. Some of the earliest gay superheroes were X-Men. It, there's another list that I found, it might be on Reddit, of all of the gay X-Men the first trans mainstream comic book hero was an ex-person. The first, they say the first drag queen superhero was an ex-person. This is a long list. I'm scrolling through it. Yeah. There are tons and tons of gay and lesbian characters. And then there are tons and tons of bisexual characters, pansexual, transgender, fluid, gender, queer, subtext, hint. I love the subtext <laughs> right. hint category. The first gay wedding in a mainstream comic for a character was an X-Men comic book. It's just, it's really fascinating to me that it's not attracting a more gender diverse audience seemingly from, sure. from what we can and find. And you're right that, that just the people buying physical comic books is probably not capturing yeah. all of the people who are reading comic books, but I mean, it's still wild. <laughs> not attracting more shipping attention. It's a fascinating thing to me. Yeah. And lovely, very lovely. The fan lore page also gives us a list of examples of Cherrick evidence in the comics. Right. Because their point is, even though it was not heavily shipped until these movies, if you yeah. dig into the canon of the comic books, you will find some Charles and Eric, you know, shippy moments. And I think we just want to share our favorite moment. <laughs> One of the greatest scenes that I can imagine. Somebody posted this wonderful scene that we will also post about uh eric in the comic book is having a fight with red skull and he's seemingly kind of kicking his ass and red skull out of frustration all he can think to do (laughs) to say to eric is charles never loved you (laughs) and he starts ranting about like you know how he he actually pitied him and blah 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 what is eric's response to this this most hurtful thing that could be said so Eric, this Omega level, Omega level is the most powerful a mutant can be. They have like power rankings. He is an Omega level mutant. One of the few in the X-verse controls metal. He gets just so much rage, flames 
waves on the, on the side, side of his face. face. He like forgets he has superpowers. <laughs> he wanders over to a bunch of rubble, picks up a chunk of bricks, and just drops them on Red Skull's head. <laughs> oh my god, it's the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> So, so I anyway. have to imagine there are some more nuggets like that in the canon. That yeah, I think there are. But that's just so great. So anyway, I don't, I, I, I don't know if I have a clear conclusion. It's just, it's just interesting to me that this is the case. And yeah. again, I can fully understand why you would watch First Class and be like, oh, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta ship these two. I gotta write some fanfic. And I also understand. You know the recency bias that we've talked about, and I understand that they are both very handsome younger sure. men, and and so youthful. But yeah, I just I I thought there would be more earlier, and whether or not it's this or something else, who's to say? It's just all interesting to me. What I would like to know is, and this is just for my own edification, the saying that the fan fiction writers are more male than in other fandoms. I'm really wondering what kind of fan fiction the men are writing. Well, the thing they said that was interesting, too, which I didn't pull over, I think this is on the fan lore page as well, is there's a lot of self-insert and uh, user-created Imagining mutants. yourself as, an, as a mutant. Yeah, or just original creation characters, which does sure. make a lot of sense for X-Men, because there's so many mutants, so, like, make another one. So I don't know if that's attracting people, and it's not really about the Maybe. characters, and more about the fantasy of just having... The powers. Yeah, it is cool. What a world, man. We learn something new every time we do one of these. This leads us to what we usually try to talk about here. What's this nexus like? How are the fans and creators in this fandom interacting with each other? As we said, all of the quotes coming from James and Michael are them in interviews with reporters. All of the things that the writers and directors say are interviews with reporters. If you look, obviously they went to Comic-Cons and stuff, but I think you're right that maybe Hugh Jackman was there and people only had questions for him. (laughs) He's the center of this franchise, or was. (laughs) So it's wild, but yeah, it doesn't seem like it's an adversarial relationship. It just seems like, as we've discussed all of these things before, it's a movie. Maybe the fans don't see their place as much in the creation of the storyline. You also have kind of similar, but not nearly to the extent, the element of the actors kind of are on board. So maybe the fans don't feel like they need to raise a fuss about it because it seems like both sets of actors ian mckellen and patrick stewart and james mcavoy and michael fassbender all seem chill with the idea of everyone shipping their characters (laughs) so there's just not a lot of fuss or ado here not that we could find yeah but again as we always say if you know about fuss or ado (laughs) do send it our way we'll do a breaking news but yeah we were not able to find too much i do think this leads us to the question the question of is it queer baiting queer coding or queer canon i think you're right right it's hard to call it queer baiting because it doesn't seem like the creators by and large were thinking about it at all (laughs) it's like it completely flew over their heads and then we don't even have instances of people confronting them with it right we have no idea what they were thinking which is interesting too even with brian singer coming back in and him explicitly putting the, the queer subtext in his initial run but seemingly not but then like yeah like leaning away from that relationship in the way that james mcavoy described where right. all of a sudden there's less and less of them as you go 
Yeah, so that's weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, is it sort of a similar Oscar Isaac situation? Are Michael and, and James actually leaning in? And, you know, is that moment of jealousy that I see in, in Michael Fassbender's face when James walks away? Is that purposeful? I mean, I think there's a discussion to be had about queer coding in general for this franchise. I, also, I feel like I will say as a caveat to the question, it's hard for me to land on a specific answer just because there's so much and varied canon. Yes. <laughs> Where it's like, it's not a coherent group of creators. It's not a coherent group of movies. I mean, there's a, certainly a discussion to be had about queer coding because all of the actors are out there saying they love each other. And yeah. Ian McKellen saying they should be fucking. <laughs> and McAvoy and Fassbender are saying, you know, they're in love and, and McAvoy's saying it's kind of a tragedy that they don't have sex and get married. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I could probably be swayed to it a little bit in the queer coding direction here. It's just such a fascinating scenario because that first movie is just beat after beat of romantic tropes. Yeah. But it feels like the creators had no idea that's what was happening. Maybe our gender swap test will help illuminate. Yes. Things. Let's gender swap it. What do we think would happen if, who are we going to gender swap? I don't know. Is it better to have a, a bad lady or a bad man? <laughs> I agree. That's the thought I was having as well. Is it boring if the good one is the lady and the man is evil? Or do we need to have an evil lady? Because they'll probably lean into some bad evil lady tropes. I feel like it's more interesting to have a man be like I could fix you to a woman that's true that's so true oh because hilariously we were just having this conversation today about the somewhat damaging or hugely damaging but also hugely popular romantic trope of a woman falling in love with a man who starts off as an evil asshole but then it she fixes him basically and it turns he goes through a process of redemption and then he's he's good again <laughs> and that is kind of what's going on here i think you're right maybe the thing to do is keep charles charles and make eric erica okay so yeah let's imagine that scenario <laughs> would they be together would they be together i think so i think the answer is yeah they would i mean the stuff that they do if you put in the context of a man and a woman for general audiences, I think would read more clearly as romantic. I do think that you're right, that you sort of have to have your queer baiting shipping goggles on when you watch the first movie to see all of the things that are happening there, but they're there. And if it's a man and a woman, I think everyone's seeing that as a fairly romantic story. And it's a tragic romantic story. <laughs> And even thinking about flash forwarding too, you have a future where it's a woman, Magneto and male Charles, and they're finally together, right? Even if we still have the same narrative of they're fighting, they're fighting, they're fighting, but yes, they finally end up together. At the end of that movie is your view like, oh, they're married now. They finally got together. I mean, yeah, they hold hands and talk about how they've wasted so much time not being together. I mean, it feels like that's what they're saying. Again, talking about the way the actors play the scene, I don't know how you could see that Ian McKellen performance and not read it as they are soulmates. They are meant to be. Yeah. And they regret not spending more time together when they were sexy young men. So yeah, we get to the why isn't it canon. And helpfully, James McAvoy has provided his own hypothesis for us. <laughs> James. Again, we fall back on the exact same answer we always have when we're dealing with big budget blockbuster properties from major studios that sell overseas. The hypothesis has got to be 
And James McAvoy agrees. As soon as you see that chemistry and think, I know where this is heading, they're not going to be able to make that movie, man. They just yeah. can't do it. You can't sell it in China. But now is where we come to my actual moment of conflict. I don't know how to rate this. Well, I think you're right. I'm not sure I'm landing that it's queer baiting. It may just be queer coding with, you know. Obliviousness thrown in. <laughs> right. It certainly doesn't feel malicious. It does feel weird now that we say it, that Brian Singer was like, I'm going to I'm gonna lean out of this queerness. I know I made queerness yeah. the subtext of my whole first trilogy, but. Well, that's what, that's I'm the out. part that makes you feel like it's, I don't know if I want to say it's queer baiting because he wasn't the one who made the first one so queer. Right. <laughs> but there is like an intentionality to them leaning away from that relationship, which is, I guess, not queer baiting, but just like sad. Yeah. <laughs> Our rating on the scale is sad. Bummer. Yeah, that's my rating this week. Bummer. If it makes anyone feel any better, if you want to have a visual to help you imagine Magneto and Xavier kissing, you can just Google Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart kiss. Because they kiss all the time. They kiss all the time. They're making dreams come true left and right. So in the world where we imagine that that scene at, at the end of Days of Future Past, where they hold hands and, and are happy that they're together after all this time, even though they wasted time together, those two are together, man. We've got the pictures to prove it. Yes. That's nice. That does make yes. me feel better. All right. Well, I guess I got to do my, did this improve your opinion on fan fiction at all? I think I'm in the same place. And yeah. maybe we'll talk about this more later dates. I wonder if, you know, I enjoy the the cute fan fictions, but they're not grabbing I, me. I think that, yeah, I'm, I've been having that thought. It's a big ask to get you to try to read anything more intense than the little fix. But I also feel like they're never going to change your mind. They're always yes. going to be the same, like... That was oh, nice. That was cute. If someone had told me about it, I think I would enjoy it just as much. Like if you were just telling me what happened in the fan. Well, because you're like, oh, that's a pleasant idea. Yeah. And you're not really going to get like what people are getting out of fan fiction until you're reading something that's really about emotional arcs and, you know. Right. But again, we're in this weird place of like, I don't know what fandom is the right one for you to try to actually read a longer. It's, you know, it's tough. Right. But well, yeah. see what we're talking about next week. Could it? I think it might actually. Okay. I think it might actually because what we are talking about next week and it's going to be kind of a departure for us is the lovely but underappreciated show Leverage. Yay. But I don't know if anyone listening has ever watched because I myself didn't discover this until last year when they announced that they were making a fourth. Fourth? Sixth. What season? Sixth season. (laughs) after the show had been canceled they're bringing it back and this is one that you also have now watched yes and i didn't know about it until you told me about it and i was like that sounds like a great premise for a show it's about heists we love heists it's a procedural but instead of solving crimes they're doing heists every episode it's amazing i don't know why more people haven't been doing this with their tv shows but what will make it different is we're talking about the ot3 as john rogers and fans of the show call them which is our first polyamorous ship yeah which is exciting so i'm psyched me too and i love leverage so i want to talk about it me too (laughs) (laughs) so again come to us if we're wrong if we're right if you have thoughts if you know about any hubbub between the creators and the fans of x-men mostly what we're asking for is hubbub bring us hubbub yes Uh, and you can do that by emailing us at ltvkpod at gmail.com or finding us on 
Twitter and Tumblr, also at LTBKPod. Find our new episodes every other Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. Bye.